Welcome to Adventist Fact Check. We're back again this week to look at one more Sabbath School lesson as we walk through the way Adventism uses its worldview to explain the Bible. This week's Sabbath School Quarterly is entitled Psalms, and the sixth lesson that we're looking at today is called I Will Arise. Now, this lesson has been put together using selected proof texts from various psalms to try to depict God as a warrior, a judge, a defender of the helpless and the needy. Um, It's using the psalms to try to create a picture of God that is consistent with what Adventism says he is. Now, I'm going to read you my two this week points that I'm going to discuss that I derived from this lesson. We'll go from there. Number one, the lesson uses the Psalms to define God as the defender of the fatherless and immigrants, the divine warrior, a proactive leader, and to define judgment as occurring in the sanctuary. Two, the reader is thus to be proactive in confronting the social problems of today and to understand the oppressed within the context of the great controversy between God and Satan as depicted in the books of Daniel and Revelation. Now, those last comments were quoted from the lesson. This week's lesson focuses on God as a warrior and a judge, a defender, as a strong deity who comes to the aid of his people. But it does this in a way that is not the way the Psalms portray him. Oh, to be sure, it uses the words of the Psalms, but they're words plucked out of various Psalms and put together for the purpose of the author's point. Now, there was a comment after a lesson that we did a couple weeks ago in the YouTube comments. And this woman said, so what is the Psalm that you're trying to teach? I'm confused listening to what you're saying. And my answer is, that's the problem with these lessons There are points and principles that the author is trying to teach, but they're not based on any one psalm. They're based on proof-texting fragments from various psalms, putting these fragments together to create a picture that the reader will understand from his great controversy worldview as based upon Ellen White's interpretation of the Bible. Now, to give you an example of what I mean, I'm going to read a paragraph from the study notes taken from the 1995 version of the New American Standard Bible Study Bible edition. Now, this is a paragraph that's made to give a general background understanding of Psalm 76. Psalm 76 is used in the lesson, but not in toto. It's only used by taking about four verses from this psalm, and they're not even all consecutive verses. First of all, here's what the study notes say about Psalm 76. Structurally, the opening, verses 1 to 3, and the closing, verses 11 and 12, stanzas, contain the main thematic development. Between them, a seven-verse stanza of praise addressed to God, verses 4 to 10, celebrates his awesome act of judgment. The internal structure is notable. Verses 4, 6, and 10 present general reflections, while the intervening verses recall the judgment itself. Verse 7, the center line, 
states the main theme of this stanza. So the lesson today only refers to verses 3 to 9 and verse 12 from Psalm 76, and that's not even a standalone study. Psalm 76 verses 3 to 9 and verse 12 are suggested for the reader to read in conjunction with fragments from two other psalms, all in one day's question. So there's no in-depth study of these psalms. There's no attempt to actually look at the structure of these psalms and to see what they're actually saying about God. Rather, little pieces are taken to build the author's view of God. For the full context, however, and because we're using Psalm 76 as an example of what could be done with these psalms instead of what is done, we're going to look and read the full Psalm 76. There's only 12 verses, and we're going to read it here from the Legacy Standard Bible. For the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. So his tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place is in Zion. There he broke the flaming arrows, the shield and the sword and the battle, Selah. You are shining, majestic from the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They sank into sleep, and none of the warriors could use his hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both chariot rider and horse, slumbered into a deep sleep. But you, you are fearsome. And who can stand in your presence when once you are angry? You made your cause to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was quiet when God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. For the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath you will gird yourself. Make vows to Yahweh your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring gifts to the fearsome one. He will cut off the spirit of princes. He is feared by the kings of the earth. And again, that is Psalm 76, verses 1 to 12. So when we look at Psalm 76 as a whole, the organization of the psalm is clear. The God of heaven has his tabernacle in Jerusalem, in Zion. He is the great God who broke the pagans' war weapons. He is the sovereign. He's worthy. And the psalm ends with a reminder to all who are around him to bring gifts to him who is to be feared by all the kings of the earth. Between the opening and the closing of this psalm, we have three verses describing God's sovereign majesty. And it's greater than the mountains. No one can stand in his presence when he is angry. Even the wrath of man will praise God. Isn't that amazing? And between these declarations of God's ultimate greatness and power are descriptions of his victory over the armies that threatened his people. God rendered his enemies powerless, and his judgment was heard over all the earth. Even nature was unable to react, but feared him and was still. Psalm 76 is only one of many psalms, proof text in this week's lesson. But as with Adventist teachings in general, the proof text method eviscerates the meaning of the psalms. 
we don't get the real biblical picture of who God is. We get the picture that the author is trying to build. The Psalms, as we will see here, are structured poetry. And this is what's missing when we look at little snippets taken from the Psalms and put together to make a point. The Psalms are carefully structured, and even the format of the poetry is purposeful in emphasizing who God is and what he does and what he cares for and who he loves. The lesson's author has certain ideas in mind that he intends to convey to his Adventist readers, and these ideas correspond to the great controversy worldview. The idea that God is up in heaven conducting an ongoing battle with Satan for the souls of men, and that we here on earth are helping vindicate God's character by choosing to obey his law against Satan's accusations that the law is unfair. That is not a biblical model. That is not what the Psalms are portraying. Even the Psalm fragments used in this lesson to make a point are removed from their context and they're discussed without the benefit of the full description. The reader gets a few vivid words carefully chosen to convey a few things, but the fullness of God's majesty, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness are missing by proof texting even the Psalms. The author is able to develop his purposes, including a leaning toward a social justice agenda reflecting today's progressive critical theory that's taught in so many universities, including Adventist schools and universities. Without doubt, the Old Testament and the New Testament both command God's people to care for the poor, to care for the needy, to take care of the widows, to take care of the children and the orphans. But that is not the agenda that this lesson is suggesting. The teacher's comments help us understand what it is they're actually trying to teach the reader of this lesson. On page 81, we find these two paragraphs. This is in the teacher's comments. But there are always more people in need, even within the church, than the system can support. Nowadays, other forms of abuse and oppression, such as bullying and torture, are prevalent besides poverty. We as Christians should identify the victims of such oppression and injustice and aid them. We must commit ourselves faithfully to finding ways to provide for their needs. Immigration is another challenging issue in many countries around the world. Immigration has been an issue since the first days of human history. People have always looked for better places to live and thrive. We are the hands of God. He asks us to support and give succor to the lost, the straying, the stranger, the outcast in our society. We should invite the members of this group to fix their eyes on the one who is the defender of the fatherless and the immigrants. Now, of course, Christians are called to help these marginalized groups. We're called to help anyone whom the Lord brings into our circle, anyone whom the Lord brings into our fellowship. But we do it with wisdom, with godly discernment, and with biblical guidance. 
These paragraphs that I just read suggest that today's social and political agenda is to define who we help and how we help them. And in the typical Adventist fashion, these paragraphs I read for the teachers to convey the message to the Adventist readers and Sabbath school goers uses God's sovereign care for the oppressed as a guilty wedge to bind the conscience of the reader and to engage those people in social justice issues. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying we don't need to worry about the issues of society around us? No, I'm not saying that. But in this lesson, these issues are presented as the main thing, the thing Christians are supposed to do. Well, number one, let's go back to the basics. This is Adventism we're talking about. Adventism is using Christian words and Christian concepts to get their audience to do things that they believe they should do in order to help people be attracted to Adventism. Adventism is not biblical Christianity. Adventism has a different gospel, a different fallible Jesus. It has a different method of salvation. It is not Christian. So to assume that the readers are Christian is to assume wrongly, that most of the people reading the Sabbath school lesson know who Jesus really is. We have to start with the beginnings. If we start with social justice issues, we will be no more than a humanitarian organization who's completely secular. There will be no godly purpose in what we do except general helping of humanity, which is a good thing, but it's not what the lesson is purporting it to be. Secondly, social justice is not the gospel. It's not part of the gospel. Social justice, or should I say caring for those around us in a biblical way, is the fruit of the gospel. The gospel is clear and it has to come first. The gospel is to believe in the finished work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection in payment for and atonement for our sin, in breaking the curse of death. And only when a person understands and knows the gospel and has trusted the Lord Jesus and his finished work is this whole business of dealing with the public, of dealing with the needs of society, significant. Only when a person knows the Lord can he help the poor and needy in a way that will transform their lives, that will actually show them the truth about Jesus. Finally, we come to this ending point of the lesson, which is such a big thing in the total scheme of things. And that is the idea of sanctuary and judgment. The week's lessons end with a whole day's study based on the sanctuary. Now, from an Adventist perspective, just using the word sanctuary is enough to trigger the readers. What did you think of when you heard the word sanctuary as an Adventist? I can tell you what I thought of as an Adventist. I thought of Levitical priests and blood and Jesus in heaven doing the work of a Levitical high priest, sprinkling his blood on confessed sins until finally that investigative judgment would be over and he would place those sins on the head of Satan, the scapegoat, supposedly, who would then carry those sins, which had been transferred to heaven by Jesus' own blood, just saying, and carry them out of heaven 
and thus cleanse the sanctuary. Now that is so inside out and upside down. But that is what is triggered in an Adventist mind by the word sanctuary. The week's lesson ends with a study entitled The Lord's Judgment and the Sanctuary. Now Thursday's lesson includes these words, a paragraph that says this. At the sanctuary, the plan of salvation was revealed. In paganism, sin was understood primarily as a physical stain to be eliminated by magic rites. In contrast, the Bible presents sin as a violation of God's moral law. God's holiness means that he loves justice and righteousness. Likewise, God's people should pursue justice and righteousness and should worship God in his holiness. To do that, they must keep God's law, which is an expression of his holiness. Now, this paragraph is a paragraph full of significant, loaded statements. In one paragraph, the reader is reminded that God supposedly judges on the basis of the Ten Commandments. If the reader is to pursue holiness and righteousness, according to this paragraph, they're to worship in holiness, read that, keep the seventh-day Sabbath, and obey or keep God's law, the Ten Commandments. This paragraph suggests all of that and any Adventist will automatically understand that from reading this paragraph. There is the entire Adventist teaching contained in those few words that the Ten Commandments are the transcript of God's character and the tool of both justification and judgment. In a lesson which is purported to be showing God as a warrior, a savior, a defender of the poor, Buried in there, tucked into the end of the lesson, is the Adventist worldview, the great controversy paradigm that salvation begins at the sanctuary. Even here, the reader is reminded that Jesus is up there looking to see who's keeping the law, looking to see who's keeping the Sabbath, looking to see who has confessed his sins. And only then does he apply his blood to those confessed sins. All of this is implied in this paragraph, and even this whole business of social justice, caring for the poor, the immigrants, the needy, the widows, the orphans, all of this is part of doing God's will, keeping his law, doing his will, and being like Jesus so that he can pass the investigative judgment because he's living a holy life. All of these things are intertwined with the investigative judgment, and every Adventist knows it. The great controversy worldview defines every good deed an Adventist ever thinks of doing, and it's based on a completely false worldview, a completely false conception of God, and a completely wrong Jesus. What is the basis for justice and justification if it isn't Jesus up in heaven sprinkling blood and us down here keeping the law? Well, we don't have to look far. Romans 3, 21 to 26 lays it out so clearly. I'm going to read it from the Legacy Standard Bible. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith for a demonstration of His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is the Lord Jesus, not the law, who is our judge, who is the just one, who justifies us. He is the only one who is just, He is the only one who justifies. He did this by taking our imputed sin into his body on the cross, by bearing the wrath of God as he hung on the cross, by dying our death, by being buried, and by rising on the third day and breaking the curse of the law. It is Jesus who justifies us. We are not justified by keeping the law, and we are not justified because God has seen that we did our best to please him. We're not justified by doing our best so he can do the rest. He does it all. The Adventist worldview is false. The Adventist picture of Jesus in the Psalms, the Adventist picture of God in the Psalms is truncated. It is limited. It is designed to fit the great controversy worldview. God is not a warrior who's waiting for us to help defend his reputation so he can ultimately cast Satan down. No, God is already completely in charge of Satan. God is already completely in charge of our salvation. He is the one who gives us faith to believe. He is the one who justifies us through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity who took our flesh and died our death and gives us his life. When we trust him, the great exchange happens. Our sin is placed on him. His life His personal righteousness is attributed to us. We are hidden with Christ in God, and we never come under condemnation. When we trust him, we pass from death to life. Yes, God is the sovereign warrior who never goes back on his promises. He is the sovereign defender of the needy. He is the one who is faithful to his word. He keeps his promises. He formed us. He called us. He gives us faith to believe. He is sovereign and we honor him. We don't have to get to know him in truncated proof texts to fit into a worldview that includes a supposed physical sanctuary with Jesus sprinkling blood. His blood was shed once for all on the cross. And if you haven't trusted your life to the one who has given his life, this is the day to do it. Trusting Jesus will cause you to pass from death to life and you will never come under judgment.